Good morning, Austin Stone. It is good to be with you today. Happy Easter to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What an honor it is to be with you this morning to celebrate what is without a doubt the single greatest event in human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. You know, from the moment that his heart began to beat and breath filled his lungs, death was defeated and our lives and our eternities were changed forever. And that is really good news for us today. You know, you probably heard that the Surgeon General of the United States came out and said this week would probably be the darkest week in many Americans' entire lives. And so I don't think it's an accident that this week happens to be Holy Week or Easter week, because the resurrection of Jesus reminds us today that darkness never has the final word. So on, on this Easter Sunday morning, we're continuing through the book of Matthew together, and as it happens, that the exact place that we land today in the text was one of Jesus' most definitive declarations he ever makes in his ministry that he would die and would be buried and would rise again back to life. And so far, we've sort of seen Jesus in this verbal battle with the Pharisees. He's just informed them. They've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's called them a brood of vipers. He's pointed out the evilness of his heart, which was made evident by the fruit that they bore. And now what we're going to see today is he's going to make such a bold and in their minds audacious claim. that He's going to draw a line in the sand. And it's going to force the Pharisees to choose whether they're ultimately going to worship him or completely dismiss him as a heretic. And this verse, church, is incredibly important for us today because as we read it, you and I are going to be presented with that exact same choice. Because at the, at the end of the day, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, being neutral is not an option. Being neutral is simply not an option. When a guy claims that he died and rose from the grave, you're either going to dismiss him as crazy, dismiss him as a heretic, or you're going to bow down and you're going to worship him. And so let's open our Bibles today to the book of Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And so a group of Pharisees walk up to Jesus, they call him teacher, and they say, Jesus, we want you to perform a sign for us. And some translations say, we want you to perform a sign from heaven for us. And so in other words, the Pharisees were trying to provoke Jesus into doing some, or, or performing some public miraculous display of his power. There, there's a couple of clues here in this verse that really clearly demonstrate the heart of behind the Pharisees' approach to Jesus here. Number one, I want you to notice that it says some of the Pharisees approach Jesus. This is key because this was not some random question by one of the Pharisees. The fact that it says some of them approach Jesus shows that there was a group of them that had intentionally gotten together and plotted about coming and approaching Jesus with this demand. Second, I want you to notice that it says that they called him teacher or rabbi. And from all outward appearances, it looks like they were being respectful to him, but they were not. I say that because what we know about the Pharisees is that to earn the title of teacher, you had to, you had to spend years going through the Pharisaical system. And we know that Jesus was not educated in their system. He was a carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth. So when they call him teacher, 
They're not being respectful at all. They're actually mocking him. I was thinking about it. It would be like a group of uh, NFL coaches hanging out in a room and, uh, and some guy that's like a, a volunteer flag football coach in, in their minds walks up to him and says, hey, NFL coach, guys, I've got a new offensive system that I want to tell you. It's better than any offensive system that you've ever done. It's going to blow everything you've ever done out of the water. And then one of the NFL coaches looks at the, the football coach, flag football coach from Athens and says, okay, coach, why don't you tell us what you got? <clears throat> That's exactly what was going on here. They were not showing Jesus respect by calling him teacher. It was actually the opposite. And the text continues in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see sign from you. Now, I want you to notice how they said that to him. First of all, they don't, don't, they don't ask him to perform a sign. They just demanded it. They don't say, hey, sir, do, would, you, would you please show us a sign or a miraculous sign? It's more like they're saying, hey, teacher, if you're really who you say you are, then why don't you write something in the sky and prove it? And with those words, they clearly reveal the evil intentions of their heart towards Jesus. Because think about it. What did Jesus just get finished doing? What did he just get finished doing? Jesus, just a few minutes before this, healed a person that was blind and deaf and demon-possessed. Just a few moments before that miracle, every single Pharisee saw it. Every single Pharisee that came up to him would have seen him perform one of, one of the most miraculous displays of his divinity in his entire ministry when he healed the guy that was blind, deaf, and demon-possessed. So why in the world are they coming up to him again and, and asking and demanding him that he perform another miraculous sign? Well, here's the answer. Listen carefully. The Pharisees knew he wouldn't do it. Jesus never, ever, perform miracles just to show off. There was always a spiritual, God-exalting purpose for every single miracle Jesus ever did. And so there's no way that Jesus would have done a, a, a miracle on demand to, to prove himself to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees knew it. And so what the Pharisees were doing is they were trying to trap him. They demanded that he perform a miraculous sign knowing full well he wouldn't do it so that when the crowd saw him refuse to do the sign, he would be discredited. <clears throat> well, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they hated him. He knew they were trying to discredit him. And so he completely ignores their demands. And I want you to watch what he says to him in Matthew 12, 38. It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. <clears throat> but he answered them, and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. When Jesus said that, he couldn't have possibly picked two more offensive things to call the Pharisees than evil and adulterous, but that's just what he did. And here's why. Because the Pharisees thought that they were the most moral, most upstanding, most godly members of the entire society, and yet in front of the entire crowd, Jesus says, the fact that you just came to me and you tried to get me to use the power of God for your benefit absolutely proves that you aren't moral and godly, but that you're evil and you're adulterous. And church, that sentence right there just might have been the straw that broke the camel's back that would solidify in the Pharisees' minds that they were going to kill him. And if that were not enough, I want you to watch what he says next. Because what he says next is going to draw the line in the sand. 
in Matthew 12, 39. But he answered him and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, here's what Jesus just said. He said, the the fact that you want me to perform a sign for you proves the intentions of your heart are evil and adulterous, and so I'm not going to perform some miraculous sign for you, but here's a sign I will give you. Jesus is saying, there's one sign that I'm going to give you today, and it's going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what in the world does that mean? He explains in verse 40. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus continues, and he says, For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus says, you boys want a sign? Here's the only sign that I'm going to give you, that just in the same way that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man, which is the Messiah, spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now listen carefully, because here's what Jesus is doing. There's two types of prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament contains two types of prophecies about the, old, about the Messiah. Number one was what was called verbally predictive. Verbally predictive prophecies were prophecies where the Scripture just used words to tell you about the Messiah's character and nature. Things like Isaiah 7, 14, that predicted the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Or um, prophecies like Jeremiah 23, 5, that said that Messiah would be a descendant of David and and would rule with justice and righteousness. But the other type of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament was called a typical prophecy or typology. And a typical prophecy was not just words, but it was some event that happened in the Old Testament that was a picture or as a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. And so what Jesus just said to the Pharisees was that when Jonah was in the stomach of a whale, for three days and three nights, and then was vomited up on a shore very much alive and well, that that was actually a foreshadowing of the person and the work of the Messiah who would spend three days and three nights dead in the heart of the earth, but would then come busting forth from the tomb very much alive and well. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, hey, hey guys, y'all remember the story of Jonah? The story of Jonah was a story about me. And you guys want a sign. Here's the only sign I'm going to give you. And the sign is this, that I am going to rise from the grave. Now listen carefully, guys. Church, this is the whole point that Jesus is driving at today. You know, over the last year of Jesus' ministry, he's performed sign after sign. He's performed miracle after miracle. And some people believe, but most people didn't. But Jesus is saying here that there's going to be one sign. There's going to be one miracle that's going to be bigger and it's going to be greater than every other sign and every other miracle, and that is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And his whole point is this, is that how you and I respond to the irrefutable sign of the resurrection of Christ will be the single determining factor on whether or not you are a follower of Christ or not. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 10.9. Paul says this very thing. In Romans 10.9, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says there's two things 
Two things that are the evidence of the saving work of Christ in your life. Number one is that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And number two, that you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. And so what Paul's saying there and what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is that everything comes down to this one question. How are you going to respond to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave? And so I want to start landing the plane today on this sermon by talking about how there are basically three responses that a person has toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's three ways that people typically respond to the reality of the resurrection. And I'm going to do that with the hope that on this Easter Sunday morning, you and I will respond in a way that leads to salvation and eternal life. The first response is simple unbelief. And these are people that, for whatever reason, they hear the truth of the resurrection, they see the truth of the resurrection of a man named Jesus that actually died and, and rose from the grave, and they just don't believe it. The other day, I saw a picture on Instagram of some doctors and some nurses that were on a roof of a hospital they were working at, and they were covered from head to toe with protective gear um, because they were fighting the coronavirus, and they were praying. And one of them was kneeling one of them has their hands sort of facing upward like this. One of them had their hands completely to the sky. And from everything I could tell, they were crying out loud to the Lord. They were praying in just the middle of the storm that is COVID-19. And it reminded me of a couple of stories <clears throat> that I heard about a doctor and a nurse that actually go to the Austin Stone. The doctor's a head guy at one of the local hospitals. And when everything broke out and the city of Austin asked for hospitals to volunteer to take on COVID-19 patients, my friend said, he said, Matt, I raised my hand. He said, Matt, I'm a Christian. He goes, I, he said, I know where I'm going to go when I die. And as a Christian, I want to serve and love this city. I also heard of a nurse that goes to the stone, did the same thing. She volunteered to be a part of the ICU ward at one of the local hospitals. And she said the same thing that my friend said. She said, I'm, I'm single, I'm a Christian, I, I know where I'm going when I die. So she raised her hand and said, sign me up, I'm wading into this thing. And it hit me. Where in the world did they get the courage to do that? Where in the world did they get the courage to say that? How in the middle in, uh, of the greatest crisis maybe of our generation, does a person raise their hand without a moment's hesitation and say, I will lay down my life if I have to in order to save the lives of other people? Here's the thing. I don't know why everybody does that, but I know why these two did it. They raised their hands and they volunteered because they are not afraid of death. And the reason that they are not afraid of death is because they serve one and they know one and they love one and they are loved by one who has conquered death. You see, when you believe, when you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ has already defeated death and you can stare death in the face and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, I am not afraid of you anymore because my Savior it's already defeated you. And what's interesting are some of the comments below the picture of the doctors and the nurses that were praying. I scrolled down on Instagram. I looked at the comments, and sure enough, the very first comment under the picture was someone saying in all capital letters that this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen because there is no God. 
And you know, in one sense, their comment makes all the sense in the world. If there really is no God, if there is no resurrection, if, if this life really is all that we've got, then doctors and nurses walking toward a pandemic makes no sense at all. But if there is a resurrection, if Jesus Christ did rise from the grave, then it makes all the sense in the world to put on a hazmat suit and lift your hands to the risen Lord and boldly walk into the valley of the shadow of death because you know that the one who conquered death is gonna walk with you. And so that person on Instagram is an example of the first response to the resurrection. They see the evidence of the resurrection of Christ right in front of their faces and they simply don't believe. But the second response is really different. The second response that we see to the resurrection of Christ are people that actually believe that he rose from the grave, but it's not enough for them to give their whole lives to Jesus. You know, you, you clearly see examples of this in the scripture. After Jesus rose from the grave, there were some soldiers that were guarding the tomb when he was resurrected, and the soldiers ran to the religious leaders, and they, they, they told them what they saw. They were like, um, uh, we, we saw the whole thing. That guy, that Jesus, some angels came, they rolled away the stone, and that guy got up from the dead, and he walked out. And what the Pharisees said in response was fascinating. Instead of falling on their faces and worshiping the risen Lord, they were so afraid of losing control of their lives. They were so afraid of losing the little power they had over their little kingdoms that they looked at those soldiers and said, don't tell anybody what you saw, but instead tell everybody that his disciples came and stole his body. Like these are people... It's a classic example of people that fulfill half the requirement for salvation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Make no mistake, those Pharisees believed in their hearts that Christ was risen from the grave, but because they did not want to give up control of their lives, they refused to confess with their mouths that Jesus was Lord. You know, and it sounds crazy, but that kind of response is honestly more common than you think. There are far too many people that if you were to ask them, they would say, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. But because they're not willing to give up control of their lives, they refuse to confess with their mouth that he is their Lord. And all the examples I'm about to give you are real examples from my time, my 18 years here at the Austin Stone. I can tell you about the single person that believed in the resurrection but when God did not provide a spouse for them like they wanted, they just walked away altogether. I could tell you about the wife who believed in the resurrection, but when her husband cheated on her, she began to doubt the goodness of God. and She walked away from Jesus altogether. I could tell you about the young man who believed in the resurrection, but when sickness, illness came in his life, he felt God had abandoned him and he walked away from Christ. I could tell you about the personal friend of mine that would have told you he believed absolutely in the resurrection of Christ, but he went through a period of spiritual dryness and he began to doubt God's love for him and completely walked away. And I could go on and on and on and listen carefully. Every single one of those situations, what those people were essentially saying to Jesus is, Jesus, the fact that you rose from the grave is not enough for me. 
And just like the Pharisees, they're saying to the Lord, Jesus, I need you to perform another sign before I confess you as Lord of my life. And Jesus' whole point through this text is this, is there is nothing greater in the history of the whole world than the fact that I am going to rise from the grave. And if that is not enough for you, if that is not enough for you to give me your heart and to give me your life, nothing ever will be. And that brings us today to the last response of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And those are people that just like doctors and nurses that stand on top of a roof in the middle of COVID-19 and praise the Lord. These are folks that see the evidence of the resurrection of Christ and it changes everything. So let's look real quickly at the last thing Jesus says to the Pharisees. <clears throat> Verse 40. He says, for just as, as Jonas spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now watch what he says in verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so here's what Jesus is saying here. He's showing them, the Pharisees, the folly of not repenting and not believing in light of the reality of his resurrection. And Jesus reminds them, he reminds them of how the people of Nineveh responded at the preaching of Jonah. And so you remember, God sent Jonah to the people of Nineveh to call them to repentance. And you guys know the story. Jonah didn't want to go. He hated the Ninevites. And he did everything in his power not to go to them. He, he, he went to Tarsh just like crazy. God had to send a fish to swallow him up, take him back to Nineveh where he wanted to go. Finally, he reluctantly went and he, listen, he preached an eight-word sermon to the Ninevites. I want to read it to you. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Here's the sermon that Jonah preached to the Ninevites. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, here's the sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's eight words. Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And after he preached an eight-word sermon, what did the Ninevites do? They repented and they turn to God. Jonah 3.5 says this. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees, those Ninevites are gonna rise up on judgment day and they are going to, to condemn you because they heard an eight-word sermon from a reluctant preacher that didn't even want to be there, and yet they repented. And yet you are going to see the resurrection of Christ with your own eyes, and yet you refuse to believe. <clears throat> I want you to watch the last thing Jesus says because this is incredible. In Matthew 12, 41, it says, the men of Nineveh, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up <clears throat> at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus continues, and he said, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Sol Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon <clears throat> is here. 
The final thing Jesus tells him here is this. He says, look, the Ninevites repented after an eight-word sermon of a reluctant preacher. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth and repented after hearing the wisdom of Solomon. And he looks at him and he says, how much more should you repent because something greater than Jonah and something greater than Solomon has come. A little side note here before I finish the sermon today. Church, don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus was just a good moral preacher. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus was just on par with Buddha or Confucius, that he had some good things to say, but he wasn't really uh, the son of God. Here's why. You can't ever do that. The Ninevites repented from an eight-word sermon from Jonah, and that was one of the greatest accomplishments that the Jewish people thought about. It was one of the things they were most proud of. And check this out. Solomon was considered by the Jewish people the greatest man who ever lived. And yet Jesus rolls up on the scene, and he looks at the Pharisees and says, hey, guys, I want you to understand something. Someone that is greater than Jonah and someone that is greater than Solomon is standing right in front of your face. That would be like me walking up on the stage at the Austin Stone and saying, hey, church, y'all know Billy Graham? Y'all remember Charles Spurgeon? Well, guess what? Something greater than Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon is here, and it's me. What would you do? Well, you'd laugh your head, heads off. You'd get up and you'd walk out the door and never come back to the church again. Listen, you simply don't say that you're greater than Joe. Well, you're greater than Solomon unless you're crazy or unless you really are. It turns out, church, that Jesus Christ is everything. He says he is. Jesus is greater than Solomon, and he is greater than Jonah. Think about this. Jonah was commanded to preach God's word. And yet Jesus came in the flesh as God's word. Jonah said, I'd rather die than go to those sinners. And Jesus said, I will die in order to go to those sinners. Jonah saw the king of Nineveh get off his throne and repent. Jesus, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, got off his throne so that you and I could repent. Jonah spent three days and three nights alive in the belly of a fish and was vomited out. Jesus spent three days and three nights dead in a tomb and was resurrected out. And God sent Jonah to save one nation. But God sent Jesus to save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Church, the people repented at the preaching of Jonah. How much more should you and I repent at the reality that one who is greater than Jonah has come and he has risen from the grave? Today, on this Easter Sunday morning, the choice before you is crystal clear. You can respond like the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection said, that's not enough. And they refused to make him Lord of their lives. Or you can fall on your face and offer him your whole life.
Those are the only two choices. You know, church, I've seen more amazing signs in my life than I really can share with you in this sermon. God has spoken to me in miraculous ways over and over and over again in my life. He's healed me from cancer. In his grace, he used me to start a church that would grow far beyond my intelligence and my gifting, use it to change the world. I've seen evidence after evidence after evidence of the reality of God in my life, but there is nothing. There is nothing that has convinced me of his reality more than the moment that I confessed with my mouth and I believed in my heart that Jesus rose from the grave and everything changed in my life. Austin Stone, today we celebrate the reality and the truth, the amazing truth that something greater has come. His name is Jesus Christ. Church, he is alive. Believe in him today and be saved. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it's been to preach your word today. God, I pray for anyone that is in the sound of my voice that has never trusted in you as their Lord and as their Savior. Father, I pray by your grace today that they would confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and they would believe in their hearts that you raised them from the dead and they would be saved. God, I pray today, as always, and from the first moment of this church, that through all of this, Jesus, your name would be exalted. Someone greater truly has come, and you are worthy of our whole hearts. So be glorified. Be glorified. Be lifted high. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you that you are alive today. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen.